Welcome to the Animation Podcast, an official podcast of Filmbook. The Animation Podcast is a weekly animation news podcast that reports on the latest animation movie and TV show news. Okay, this is going to be a long one, guys. I think this is, I think I, I'm like looking at the word count on uh, what I've written down here. This might be my longest review yet, but I also think it makes sense because Encanto is going to be the thing, that the movie that everybody's paying attention to this award season. So I'm trying to get everything, all my words together on it. Um, we're going to find out what I think later on in the episode. I'm not pulling a uh, diary of a wimpy kid like I did last week. Um, but before that, hello everyone and welcome to the Animation Podcast. It is a weekly podcast about all things animation brought to you by Filmbook. My name is Ephraim Bernie. If you are tuning into the Animation Podcast for the first time, what I do on this show is I discuss the current week's animation news. You can find more of the Animation Podcast episodes on Filmbook, that's Film book.com by using the search term the animation podcast if you are listening to this podcast on itunes or another podcasting service please rate and review this episode if you are listening to this podcast on youtube please like our video uh, subscribe and consider becoming one of our patrons on patreon at patreon.com forward slash filmbook your support helps us create even more engaging content now i have uh top news stories for you today i've got a lot of big ones we've got award stuff we've got trailers um in biggest news for for people who like heists and anthropomorphic animals i'm sure you know where i'm going with this they've been spamming our trailers like this trailer left and right but dreamworks has given us a trailer for their next big action comedy the bad guys um I have a kind of love-hate relationship with DreamWorks, uh, as when they're good, they're, like, the best in the game, seriously, um, but when they are bad, oh, boy, <laughs> uh, they are bad, um, and they've had a couple of, they've had a couple of real stinkers as of late, uh, not to be too critical, I don't want to be too critical, but, uh, like, in the last five years, I think I've liked two of their movies, and maybe one and a half, uh, but the bad guys, the story of the criminal team of animals attempting to turn a new leaf and embrace a life of law-abiding civility actually has me kind of excited, believe it or not. Um, for one, it's got a great look to it. It's hard to describe, uh, but the action looks really slick and tailored to a heist movie. There's sort of a generic style of what animated action and fighting looks like in movies these days, but I think, at least from the trailer, the bad guys is shaping up to be something that embraces the animal nature of its characters while paying homage to the genre-based roots that the movie has. If that sounds familiar to a little movie called Kung Fu Panda, you would be right in thinking that, as uh, this movie's director, Pierre Perrafel, was an animator on all of the Kung Fu Panda movies, as well as Rise of the Guardians, and the director of the short film Bilby, if you remember that one. You also might not remember Rise of the Guardians. Uh, that's the one with... The, there was the the Owls of Gahul that was also called Rise of the Guardians or something like that. Um, this is the one This is the one that talks about all the Christmas characters, uh, the, the holiday characters becoming edgy and fighting each other. Um, at least that's how I remember it. So, uh, at least coming back to the bad guys, on the action front, you can be excited. The characters also have this occasional cell-shaded look to them, which feels very 
comic booky and pulpy in an exciting, fresh way. Um, to give you just a general rundown on the plot, a gang of master criminals consisting of a wolf, a tarantula, a piranha, a snake, and a great white shark are forced to try and take on an even bigger baddie to repay, the, repay their debts for a life of high-stakes robberies. Um, it's a great cast of character actors, too, which is always encouraging, uh, with the main five being voiced by Sam Rockwell, Craig Robinson, Anthony Ramos, uh, Aquafina, and Ma Mark Maron. I don't know too much more about the movie. Like, it's still there's still a couple of question marks about what this, how the tone is going to be pulled off. There's a a joke in the trailer where this little old lady calls the Sam Rockwell wolf a good boy, and he starts acting like an exciting dog, an excited dog, and that kind of made me groan a bit. But look. That's a trailer, and again, I've always said you can't trust trailers too much when it comes to these things. Ultimately, my hopes are high for this one. It hits theaters in uh, on April 22nd, uh, 2022. And more award season buzz and stats uh, to keep of note, they're coming in. This week, we got the nominees for the Best Animated Films from the Golden Globes and the Critics' Choice Awards, which uh, has rightly returned Best... Um, Critics' Choice Awards, I mean. They have rightly returned Best Animated Film back into an on-air category. Last year, if you remember... Uh, the Critics' Choice Awards made create uh, they created a spinoff ceremony where the awards they awarded more genre based films that you might not ha that might not make it into the limelight normally and decided to include best animated film within those categories that don't make it onto your television set come the big award night. After facing the demand for the animation awards back in the main programming, we will once again see our favorite cartoon characters and movies celebrated up on the stage along with their, their talented creators. So, for the 2022 Choice Awards, we have Encanto, Flea, Luca, The Mitchells vs. the Machines, and Raya in the Best Picture Animated category, and Big Mouth, Bluey, Bob's Burgers, The Great North, Q-Force, and Marvel's What If in the Best Animated Series. Um, I don't want to say that I'm something of a fortune teller, uh, but those were the exact five movies that I told you last week were probably going to make it into the Oscars, and while these are not the Oscars, they are certainly a good sign. Uh, we can discuss the TV shows nominated in just a bit. I haven't gone, I haven't gone, uh, done as much coverage on some of those. Uh, I haven't, like, talked about them in the award season stuff, which is, seems strange, because they do those. I just, there hasn't been as much coverage. I guess they don't care as much in animation news. Um, but, um, uh, what's really interesting is talking about the Golden Globes. So, um, the Golden Globes nominated very similar roundup in Kanto, Flea, Luca, um, Raya, and instead of the Mitchells versus the Machines, we got My Sunny Maud, um, the Czech film about the woman in Afghanistan. Um, it's 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 really interesting and kind of exciting. It's a move that has got a lot of people's attentions for a couple of reasons. One, just on a level as far removed as you can get, it's really cool to see two smaller scale foreign animated movies like Flea and My Sunny Mod going toe to toe and beating out big league animation studios like Sony and Netflix. Um, my Sunny Mod is also the only film in the category with a woman director, Michaela Palvatova. Um, hope you're saying that. Hope I'm saying that right, Michaela. Um, and before you jump down my throat, I know Sharice uh, Castro Smith is technically uh, directing Encanto, but she's credited as a co-director. So 
you know, we can, <laughs> let's celebrate, let's celebrate My Sunny Mod with this achievement. Um, so this is all to say that My Sunny Mod is starting to prove that anyone anywhere can make a career in animation, which I think is a great sentiment. That's not entirely true <laughs> just yet, but it's a start. The second thing that is interesting about this, but in le less of an exciting thing and more like, ooh, look at animation world drama, um, is that Sunny Mod beat out, by Sunny Mod beating out Mitchells, that means that Disney is the only American animation studio represented at the Golden Globes this year. And look, to take a little bit of a subjective moment here for just a second, uh, Mitchells totally deserved Raya's spot, right? I'm not representing film book right now or giving an official stance. This is just me. Mitchells, am I the only one in thinking that Disney doesn't need three movies up there and Raya was just not that spectacular, I don't know. Regardless, this upcoming award season is starting to look more and more and more interesting with every passing week. Now, let's talk a little bit about these shows, right? We're moving into the Marvel, DC, Disney, Netflix, all that, you know, that category, right? Let's talk a little bit about these shows nominated, since I feel like they're often sidelined in the awards conversation. For the entirety of the Best Animated Program um, at the Critics' Choice Awards, um, at least for TV, right? There have only ever been three shows that have taken home the trophy. That's for the entirety of that category's existence. The award has been was won four years in a row by Archer, and then when BoJack premiered, it quickly became the Horseman's Prize to take, um, as the Netflix original series won the award five times over, only once being beaten by Rick and Morty. And considering how Rick and Morty, Archer, and BoJack are all off the bracket this go-around, we're approaching very unprecedented grounds. To repeat, uh, we have six nominations, uh, two from Netflix, two from Disney, and two from Fox. Netflix gave us Big Mouth and Q-Force. Big Mouth is one of the two shows nominated that has a previous nomination under its belt, so likely it's going to be one of the bigger contenders. Q-Force was, and I'm not exaggerating here, almost universally loathed. Like, <laughs> it's honestly baffling that it's up for an award. Critics did not like this show. I do not know why they're nominating it for something. I don't think it has that much of a chance of winning. <laughs> On Disney's end, we have uh, Marvel What If, and uh, from the likes, uh, you know, uh, Marvel, <laughs> and uh, we have uh, Bluey from Disney Junior. What If could be a surprise winner for us. I'm not counting it that out of the realm of possibilities. Cr critics liked it, and it wasn't afraid to embrace a more serious tone, which it is seemingly what resonates with the CCA. It's not my pick, just because it's relatively new on the scene, uh, but I'm not saying it doesn't have a chance. Bluey is the show that I know the least about, um, as I'm sure is the case with maybe most of you guys. It's an Australian kid show, but about a cute little blue fox type guy. I'm sure it's a great show, and it's very cool that it's nominated, but we haven't seen a, like, dedicated kid show even nominated for the awards since, like, 2014. And that was with Clone Wars and Gravity Falls, both shows that were arguably for older kids. So... And yeah, both shows didn't even end up winning anyway, so I don't think Bluey has the best hopes. Um, lastly, we have The Great North and Bob's Burgers from Fox. I haven't watched all of The Great North. I didn't like it as much as I liked Central Park, but I think they're going to have... I, but I think if they're going to give their the award to a bento box show, 
it's probably going to be Bob, Bob's Burgers. And I would say that Bob's Burgers is probably the favorite to win, anyway. The show has been nominated, like, seven times and is c consistently a critic's darling. And with the heavy hitter shows out of the way this year, I think it's pretty likely that they're going to give it over to the Belchers. Um, in other Netflix news, we finally got a trailer for The House, the stop-motion gothic comedy horror anthology from directors and animators Emma DeSwave, Mark Rolls, Nikki Lindroth von Baer, and uh, Paloma Baez. Uh, or Be Beza. Sorry about that, Paloma. Um, each of those directors would have been enough to get the animation fans hyped in their own, on their own, right? Or at least stop-motion animation fans. So the fact that this is a mix of all of them is a pretty exciting moment for stop-motion animation. The plot is still purposely pretty vague, but the movie is just dripping with atmospheres, and those scares feel like they're gonna be pretty genuinely earned. Um, I've spoken... Um, I've spoken on this movie before, but as a reminder, it's told in three different stories. One set in the 1800s about a human family uh, hoping to reclaim their former glory with the purchase of this house. Um, a second set in the present uh, about a mouse trying to renovate the house for a quick buck. And a third about like, a cat uh, in the future who is struggling to hold on to the property. The movie comes out on January 14th, uh, 2022, and you should all do yourselves a favor and put that in your calendar. And lastly, in the world of American cartoons and animations, we have a premiere trailer for Smiling Friends from Michael Cusack and Zach Hadel. I spoke about them earlier. The show is coming out January 9th, 2022. You gotta watch, check it out. I love this show so much already. Um, uh, we don't get too much of a plot yet. Um, I don't imagine there will be much of a plot in the show, but it looks like we're, we're going to be seeing these characters going on all sorts of different things. They looks like they've got... I just love the designs of these little people that they talk to. I was laughing so hard. There's a moment where the little tiny guy that's voiced by Michael... Um, he's talking to this girl and she pokes this little hair on his head and she says, I love your haircut. And he says, it's an, ex it's an exposed nerve ending. That's just, it's just, it's just them to a T. I'm very excited for it. I'm going to keep plugging it. And when the show comes out, I will probably do a little review of it. Um, let's move on over to anime. Um, in the world of anime, uh, we got some exciting glimpses at what some of the country's most exciting and innovative directors have in store for us next year. This week, we got a first glimpse, a brief little teaser, at the film The Imaginary, the second feature film to come from Studio Pinoch. Some people say Pinoch. I'm saying Pinoch because that's what uh, the online translation of the original word, I think it's like a Serbian word, that's what they said it was. <laughs> um, so if you remember, Studio Pinoch is a production company founded by Studio Ghibli veteran Yoshiaki Nishimura. Um, who created the studio as a spiritual successor, successor to Ghibli. An ambitious title to stake out for yourself, not only because there are plenty of Japanese animation studios vying for that same acclaim, but also because Studio Ghibli is still making movies. <laughs> um... Pinoch's first feature was Mary and the Witch's Flower, um, and that was critically very well received, uh, essentially capturing the world's attention, but many people felt the script and story fell a little short of the mark, uh, the film once being cited as not quite a masterpiece. 
I don't know who I have cited saying that. I just it says it's like a newspaper in Seattle that says that. I just like to cite my sources. Um, <laughs> with this go around, it's clear that Pinoch is very eager to step up its game with the imaginary. They've brought on uh, Yoshiyuki Momose as a director who worked with the company previously on a segment of their anthology movie Modest Heroes, as well as directing his own feature debut, Nino Kuni. Not Nino Kuni the video game. <laughs> Nino Kuni the film. Uh, uh, Mimose might be relatively fresh-faced with the directing game, but he has an incredible resume of work in the animation department, working as a key animator on some of your favorite Ghibli and Miyazaki films. Nino Kuni was also not the strong swing out of the gate that Mimose wanted, probably wanted from a debut. So both the director and the studio have a very fiery determination to prove themselves this second time up the bat. From the trailer, we don't get much uh, besides a glimpse at the art style and a Japanese release sometime in the summer of 2022, but we do know that the movie is taking a page from something like Howl's Moving Castle and adapting a European fantasy novel. The book, The Imaginary, um, is a novel from 2014 by A.F. Harold and illustrated by Emily Gravitt. It's about a young, invisible boy named Rudger, um, who lives inside the imagination of a girl. The world of the girl's imagination creates all sorts of places and creatures for that Roger, Roger adventures with and through. Um, from the little that we can see from the trailer and the poster, the film looks pretty gorgeous, but that's not particularly surprising, as the company has always been praised for its world-building and visual storytelling. It will ultimately come down to the actual storytelling, though, if this movie and everyone behind it are going to hit the heights that they are hoping for. So, to go from an announcements of people in studios trying to prove themselves to a director who really has the world in his palm, in the palm of his hand, uh, we got a press release this week giving us a look into the next film from powerhouse director Makoto Shinkai. Um, if you're unfamiliar with the world of anime, you might not recognize this name immediately, but he's just about the most impressive name in the business right now that doesn't start with Mia and end with Zaki. Uh, <laughs> Shinkai is the mind behind the films Weathering With You and Your Name. They are his last two features, and they rank sixth and third on the list of highest grossing anime films globally, respectively. I want to clarify... Not for the year, globally of all time. These two films alone have made over half a billion dollars. Do you know how hard it is to become that successful with a movie that is not part of an already established franchise? If you look at the top 30 financially successful anime films of all time, Miyazaki and Ghibli are the only other people to ever reach those heights. And these films are, like, new. Like, Weathering With You came out two years ago, and it's already in the top ten. So, needless to say, the announcement of a new feature hitting Japanese theaters in the fall of next year had people excited. Uh, the film is called Suzumi no Tuji, uh, Tujimari, uh, which in English translates to Suzumi's Door Locking. We've yet to see any footage... Um, and the only promotional piece of art is a dilapidated-looking door standing alone in a flooded and deserted town square. We do, however, know that the movie will be about, uh, what it's going to be about is we follow a 17-year-old girl named Suzumi 
whose humdrum life in a small island town is disrupted by a mysterious young man looking for a door. Um, when after she helps him find one, presumably the one we're seeing in the promotional material, doors start appearing all over Japan, and when opened, they let loose all sorts of bizarre disasters. As the world seems to be on the brink of chaos, it's up to Suzumi to lock the doors and put uh, an end to this source before it's too late. It's an exciting premise, and Shinkai makes a special point of emphasizing that this is a road movie, likely meaning Suzumi and this young man will be traveling across all sorts of, you know, terrains and set pieces and the whatnot. Shinkai is also writing the screenplay and is working with his usual sources, i.e. Toho is releasing the movie and Comics Wave Films will be producing and animated. So it's, it's all set up to be another home run out of the park. I think animation fans around the world really should be paying attention to this one. This could be very, it's, it's probably going to shake things up a bit. Um, and since we're talking about the round world, around the world, let's grab our passports and start heading around the world, because in Animation Abroad, there is a lot of exciting development. This week, we got a good look at Cartoon Network Latin America's new upcoming action comedy, Rey Mysterio vs. The Darkness, starring WWE wrestler Oscar Gutierrez, uh, the man behind the real-life Rey Mysterio. The story is about a young wrestling fan named Oscar, could be young Oscar, who knows, who has teamed up with uh, his all-time idol, Rey Mysterio, to try and fight off the strange supernatural forces that have suddenly started plaguing Mexico. They will do battle against all sorts of um, strange, uh, you know, dark creatures from Mexican culture, and even twisted versions of wrestling personas and characters. And standing against them is the evil wrestler Ouroboros, uh, Ouroboros, uh, <laughs> an Ouroboros, a villain <laughs> whose power is so vast that even he doesn't fully understand it. The style of the show looks like an amalgamation of anime action and Latin Saturday morning cartoons. The show is being produced by Mexican studio Viva Calavera, Viva Calavera, and is slated to hit Latin American screens sometime in mid to late 2022. Aside from the production company, we don't really know much about the creatives involved in making this, aside from Gutierrez himself being involved in the creative decisions. That being said, Mysterio is a wrestling icon, and we haven't seen something like this since maybe Mucha Lucha? Uh, and that ended, in, that ended in 2005, so if you're a wrestling fan and an animation lover, this has your name written all over it. Lastly, you know it's not an animation podcast episode if I don't give you an update on Flea in the Around the World section. Uh, this past week, we finally got the results from the 34th Annual European Film Awards. If you'll remember correctly, Flea was nominated in both the animated film and the documentary categories. A lot of the chat room talk and, and commenters uh, thought that this might split its votes between the two categories, causing it to lose in both. And other more optimistic people thought that the film was likely to win one category. Well, in a game where Flea only really needed to hit the ball to impress, the Danish, French, Swedish, and Norwegian film hit a home run and won, and won not one, not two, but three awards, that being Best Animation, Best Documentary, and the European University Film Award, a category that was voted on by college students that nobody was considering this film for. <laughs> The, the consistently surprising flea has now thoroughly established itself as the European animation of the year. 
And with this kind of momentum, a big win at the Oscars seems more and more within the realm of possibilities. American voters have a history of being less open-minded with cartoons than their European counterparts, and with big-name big name animation from the likes of Disney um, as their contenders, uh, with movies like Luca and Encanto, Encanto uh, it's not quite clear where the ball is going to fall here, but one thing's for sure, Disney is definitely paying close attention to this Rolling Stone. It could be that the mouse loses to the flea this year. Uh, that's me being clever, and I will thoroughly stop. Because <laughs> um, we are moving into the home video digital HD releases category, where there's nothing clever for me to say. Um, I'm lucky if there's ever anything to say. Um, in the world of discs and things that you can hold, this week we got the release of The Mitchells vs. The Machines on Blu-ray and DVD, as well as a digital HD purchasing. I've spoke about this one on previous episodes, but as a reminder, the special edition comes with a plethora of features and creative commentaries, as well as an all-new short film, Dog Cop 7, the final chapter. I don't really need to explain to you what this film's plot uh, is. It's just about the biggest animated uh, American animation film that didn't come from Disney this year. Uh, that being said, my guess is that it will likely be nominated for the Oscars if not other big fancy awards. So if you would like to own this little piece of animation history for yourself, I highly recommend you purchase the film for your home collection. Now, 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 for the thing that we all came here for. I am reviewing Encanto very late in the game, but I am. Um, just some general specs before we dive right in. Encanto was directed by Jared Bush and Byron Howard. Uh, Jared Bush, Mr. Bush, uh, was the writer on Zootopia. He was a writer on Zootopia and Moana and co-director. He had a co-directing credit on Zootopia too. Um, and then he had worked with Byron Howard before because Byron was the director of Zootopia along with directing Tangled and Bolt. He's been a Disney boy for a while. Um, we also have, uh, it was co-directed by Cherise Castro-Smith. Um, Castro-Smith uh, Castro has a very odd writing history. N impressive, nonetheless, but she is a she's mostly a producer, and she's written uh, episodes on uh, Haunting of Hill House, <laughs> Sweet Bitter, and The Exorcist TV show. So she's got a bit of a history in horror, interesting enough, but she's more than proven herself here, because um, she's also the writer here, along with Jared Bush. It's starring Stephanie Beatriz as Mirabel, uh, Maria Cecilia Botero as Abuela Alma, and John Leguizamo as um, Bruno. I'm definitely a little late on the Encanto train. I'll be the first one to admit it. The movie came out several weeks ago and is already making buzz with its award chances, along with audiences and critics' raves alike. This isn't all at all surprising. This is the big Disney animated movie of the holiday season. They always pull out all the stops for this one. I don't know if there's much I can add to this to this discussion, so I'll try and be creative with how I talk about it. I'm already late talking about it, so you might be wondering why I even bothered with this review. The answer is twofold. One, Encanto will likely be the animated movie to beat this year, uh, so I want to cover it in some sense on here and give the official podcast take. The second is that while the movie did already hit theaters the next week, this next week it hits Disney+, Plus, and so it will likely have a whole new birth of its relevance as an entirely uh, new audience of people who would rather wait to stream it, finally get a chance to look at this film. So, let's talk about it. The story is an easy one to summarize, but doesn't really do justice to the specificity and creativity the movie relishes in. 
In Colombia, there is a town called Encanto. It's hidden away from the outside world, and despite the normal everyday challenges that come with maintaining a town and a community, it is something of a little paradise. This is all possible because of two things, the Madrigal family and their magical house, or casita. The Madrigals aren't exactly royalty or rulers of the community, but they do serve as they serve the people and are looked upon as champions and kind of authorities of the town. They are seen this way because almost every member of the Madrigal family is blessed with a magical power or a gift, as they call it in the movie, when they become of age. There's a big ceremony, everyone in the town gets invited and celebrates, and the miracle candle that I guess uh, that's kind of the grandmother's power. Alma, Abuela Alma, has this candle that fuels the house and keeps it alive. That candle, the miracle candle, reveals what each Madrigal child will be blessed with. I say almost every Madrigal gets a power because the movie focuses on Mirabel, the one member of the family who is never blessed with any abilities. She is constantly trying to prove her worth to everyone, but especially her Abuela Alma, who is the matriarch of the family and pretty much to the town, too. Um, despite being always brushed aside to her her strong, her sister Louisa, or, or her, you know, they call her the perfect daughter, sister uh, Isabella, despite being constantly brushed aside by them, um, when the magical, the miracle candle comes to, seems to lose its power, and the house, the town, and everyone inside of it, is their safety is called into question, it is up to Mirabelle to find a solution. And that is if she isn't the problem in the first place. That's kind of the, the gist of the movie. I want to talk about what I like about Encanto first, because um, there's a lot of it. There is an obvious statement that needs to be said, but this is the best Disney has ever looked. They are constantly one-upping themselves, but wow, this movie is 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 so good-looking. <laughs> like, beautiful, just to watch. The house and the characters, everyone is brimming with joy and life. It's the kind of movie that pulls you in, and you just can't help but watch it, even if you're not interested in animation or kids' movies. I specifically want to throw accolades at the way these characters move and dance and the cinematography of it all. I might drag on Disney a lot on this show, but nobody does musicals like them. It's just the way it is. Um, and the way the Madrigals dance and skip and sing, it's so unbelievably intoxicating to behold. The songs themselves are also done very well. And I'm not talking about the music. The music is good, but the sequences that the, music's ta the music takes place in. Because much of this movie is really set in one location. The house of... It's the house of the Madrigals. Um, when they get transported to different set pieces through songs, they really, really pop. The, the song that Luisa, the stronger sister, sings is a really good example of this. It's, it takes them to, they fight off, you know, they fight off a Cerberus in it, and there's these really cool moments where they're falling in opposite directions of each other. Um, this song also serves as a good example of, um, <laughs> of another thing that I'm going to talk about later, so keep that in mind. Though, the other thing I really want to talk about is that Mirabelle is far and away my favorite Disney princess now. I know that doesn't mean a lot, because I'm definitely not, like, the best judge of what a princess movie should be, what a Disney princess movie should be. I know she's not even technically a princess, but, like, yeah, this is a princess movie, if you haven't already figured it out. And Mirabelle is the best one they've made, arguably, ever, at least in my opinion. 
she is so, so, so charming and fun, and she breaks away from the kind of overdone mold of just wanting to be free and, like, see what's out there, which I feel like we've seen from Disney over and over and over again. Mirabelle wants to be valued by the people she loves most, which I think is such a great, just something that is so obvious that we should see in movies, and we just don't. We don't see that in kids' movies, at least not all the time, and certainly not from a Disney princess, um, which makes her all the more relatable and heartbreaking when things don't work out for her. This isn't entirely because of Stephanie Beatrice's uh, voice acting, but she really does add that extra secret ingredient to whatever it is. That's just that the passion that she has for it. Um, in fact, you know, that's pretty much the, the voice acting is pretty good across the board. Uh, John Leguizamo makes for a great Bruno, a character that I don't want to spoil too heavily because he's big on the plot. But that was my other favorite character in the movie. That in the house, the house itself is a great character. He's not he doesn't have any voice acting, but I just it has a very cool way of moving and interacting with the cast by shifting floorboards and tiles. I just think that's so cool. I had never seen anything like it. I just thought that was so cool how they did that. And it's something that could only be done in, like, that Disney animation style, you know? Uh, that being said, the great cast doesn't get a lot of opportunities to shine. As much as Encanto is a story, it's an ensemble story about a family, there are too many members of the family for us to ever really get to know them while having the amount of focus that Mirabelle is given. And again, Mirabelle is totally deserving of the spotlight. She holds it like a champ. Um, it's just that when that much of the story is tied to her relationship of, with her family, you wish that the family felt more characterized than the very surface-level understandings we have of each character. It felt almost like if Meet the Robinsons didn't have the second half to it, that's, like, kind of left us with that family, the, the surface-level understandings we have of each one of them. And that's more... I would expect more from a Disney movie like this, That especially one that is hitting on these levels of story and depth and family that it's trying to, at least. Let me explain a little bit more. The movie itself has a bit of a narrative structure issue. I'll talk about this family stuff. Just stick, stick with me here. I found myself thinking several times over, oh, oh, this is when we get things started. And then things really just kept starting, and then the movie ended. Um, Mirabelle knows that we she has to save the house by the end of the first act, which is exactly where things should be at the end of the first act, but then spends the entire second act trying to figure out how to save the house, which is complicated because it's never really made clear until the very end why the house is even in danger. There are guesses and ideas, but it's never really specified, which is if you're going to have a second act, at least in typical story structure, you should know what you're doing. You should know what the adventure is, and we then watch the adventure go forth. Um... So you have another hour of the movie with a girl trying to figure out an answer when we don't even really fully understand the question. It's also It also doesn't help that the movie takes place in one location, the Madrigal House. The story has several potential remedies that it introduces for this, but kind of fumbles with the execution. The house is just brimming with creativity, right? You have this amazing idea 
Um, it's so cool that each member, each magical member of the family has a room that contains its own giant in scale environment that fits the powers of the character. The little boy who can talk to animals has a jungle in his room. Mirabelle's sister, Isabella, who controls flowers, has a giant garden and a greenhouse. You get the idea. One might think that a device like that, the story would take us through the different rooms of the house as a way of breaking up the stagnant setting that is just... In Kanto, in the town, in the house. Um, but we don't explore any of them outside the two that I just mentioned and Bruno's room, which is jokingly just falling apart. It's just nothing. It's just sand and a big tower. Um, one might think um, in the songs that feature the, the members of the family, we could get glimpses into their worlds, and that would be a visual way for us to learn more about them. But that's not even explored. Say you take Luis's song. Louisa the Strong Sister, which already feels like it takes up a lot of the runtime without adding significantly to the story, um, or at least the narrative aspects. The purpose of the song, besides being a bop, um, is to introduce the idea that these powers that the family has are some something of a double-sided sword. That, that while they are amazing, the family members often feel defined by their gifts and not seen as a whole person, which is an important theme to the movie, except... It's lost, as Luisa is the only character who sings the song, and it's framed much more as a personal issue just for her, rather than a problem that permeates throughout the family, which is kind of what the movie seems to be hoping that we interpret it as later on. So, imagine. Let's do a little bit of workshopping, right? Right? Give Luisa one verse in that song, instead of the entirety of it. Instead of it, instead of that... You know, instead of it taking place in the village, maybe Mirabelle finds Luisa in her room, uh, or I guess her room world, which is maybe like a giant coliseum or a wrestling ring or something. And we have Luisa's verse, and then Mirabelle is pulled out of her room as the other members of the family express the pressure that they live in and with. We could get brief glimpses into each of their rooms, maybe. Maybe the mom who heals with her cooking has a giant kitchen that is in chaos because there's so many dishes that need to be prepared, or the aunt who controls the weather has a giant cloud in her room that she has to she needs to stay perfectly calm on or else she gets swept up into a tornado. And then, once you have those places established, you could have Mirabelle or, or Mirabella and Bruno navigating them as they try to save the world, or, you know, the house, I guess. And as they do that, you could have a B-plot of the rest of the family trying to track them down. Then we see their dynamics with each other. I don't know. I know that this is possible because they do something kind of like it in the We Don't Talk About Bruno song. But we don't see the characters we don't see the characters in their environment or really learn much about them. We just learn about Bruno, which also seems odd that Bruno doesn't get his own song. I don't know, maybe John Leguizamo didn't want to sing, but he does. He does do some singing later on. So it seems it all seemed kind of like missed opportunities left and right for the storytelling of this. Um, look, my biggest problem with the movie is how much I love it and how I can sit there and how it's hard it is that I can sit there and watch it and see how dynamic and exciting it could have been. Um, but that's a very subjective take. Look, ultimately, the good in Encanto outweighs the missed opportunities. It's very much a movie that everyone should watch and enjoy, and I have no doubt that it will likely take home all the big prizes. I just get frustrated seeing all that I feel like it could have been. 
I could talk much, much more about this. I really could, <laughs> but I'm already at like 38 minutes. Um, so let me know in the comments what you think. Um, if you want, we can go through the movie and we can like talk about all the different missed opportunities or not missed opportunities. Let's figure out what we, what we like about it, what we want to see more of in a different movie. I don't know. Right now, um, I want to give, I want to give Encanto a three and a half out of five. That's what I'm going to give it. Um, you give me your own fix in the comments or tell me why I'm wrong. Tell me why I'm wrong. Um, what are we at? Okay. Almost there. Um, I'll just do this quick. Um, for my recommendation of the week, this week we got, um, South Park post-COVID, the return of COVID. I, it feels silly just to recommend this one because it's, you can't watch this one unless you haven't, unless you've watched, like, probably the other three. Um, so I'm going to recommend them all as a whole. Um, you know South Park, it's directed by Trey Parker. Um, this one was written by, um, written by Brian Garden, Trey Parker, and Matt Stone. It stars Stone and Parker and all those fantastic other South Park performers like Kimberly Brooks, Adrian Beard, April Stewart, and a particularly great Delilah Kajala um, as the as Alexa, who quickly became my favorite, like, running gag of the whole special. Um, I'll say this. Uh, I don't, I, I'm kind of, I was relatively late to, I'm like all things today, it seems. I was relatively late to South Park love. I came into it in like my later, my later years. I wasn't someone that grew up with it. Um, I love, I love South Park when it's great. And when it's bad, it's still, it's still pretty good. <laughs> um, this, I don't remember a time where we ever saw them explore the kids when they're older, which I think is has been so much fun. Like, I could watch an entire... I, I feel like I could watch an entire maybe three, four, five-episode run of this. Because um, this that's the premise of this one. If COVID lasted in this world, in the world of South Park, probably in this world that we're in right now, COVID lasted 40 years, and they're still dealing with it, but it's 40 years later, all the guys are, like, in their mid-50s. <laughs> um, and, um... It's really fun to see all these different characters in a new light like that. There's a really there's a really funny gag, and it's not even that new, but I just like it so much, where they keep calling the time that they're in the future. Like, that's hilarious. <laughs> there's a bit with Alexa, like your Siri on your phone or whatnot. The Alexa is, a, is like a woman, like a real-life person, and she's being so difficult with, uh, with Stan. Um, it just felt like... A, it felt like them being really refreshing and, and new, and I don't know. People have said South Park is in a weird place the last couple of years. I, I can agree some of the time, but I really, really liked when they went serialized. I did. I was maybe in the minority there. I didn't even mind when it went off the rails, and it went crazy with, like, when the election threw them off and they didn't know how to change and finish the season. Um, I didn't even mind that. I like when, when South Park is ambitious, and this feels like the best of South Park being ambitious, at least to me. Um, I don't want to spoil anything. I don't want to spoil the end of it. A lot of people online have been talking about the ending, and, well, particularly Cartman in general, how he's, how his character is implemented. I thought all of it was great. I thought all of it was really funny. That includes where he ends up. I think that that's totally totally South Park to them. And, and it's totally Matt Stone and all everybody kind of punking you, maybe trying to make you feel bad or good. I'm not going to spoil anything of it, of it, but it just felt totally in line with that. And also, look, 
Cartman is... I don't think this is a, a, a controversial statement. Cartman is like a terrible human being, right? So whatever happens to him feels like we've watched this guy do so much awful stuff. It's okay if he gets a, some licks in an imaginary scenario in the future, right? That's all I'm saying. Um, all right, 43 minutes in. This is my, my other long one. Um, I told you it was going to be long, though. Here we go. Um, I'm going to finish it up, wrap it up right now. Here we go. Thank you for listening to the Animation Podcast, and this episode in particular. Be sure to like this episode and subscribe. You can find more of my work on Filmbook. That's film-book.com. Just search for Ephraim Bernie or the Animation Podcast. Who guessed? Um, you can also find me on Twitter at Frumblers or on Instagram at Ephraim underscore Burning. If you would like to contact us, you can email us at podcast at film-book.com with the animation podcast in the subject line. Tune in next week for the latest episode of the animation podcast and all things animation. Thank you for listening and I'll see you then. Thanks for listening to the animation podcast. Find more of the animation podcast on Filmbook on your favorite podcast service and on YouTube.